Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are at the first year of the triennial cycle in our Friday morning class and with the rest of the Jewish world that's reading on a triennial cycle. So I've been able to avoid this part of the Parsha for two years, but we're back. We're back. You know, I have to say it is not my favorite part. We're in uh, chapter 12, verse 1 of the book of Leviticus. For those of you needing to find your place, uh, in the green book, 639, in the women's Torah commentary, um, we, yeah, we are at some interesting laws that have to do with uh, purity and impurity, which we've discussed at length over, you know, over the years, um, and, and not that we've exhausted it. There's still, you know, a lot to talk about. But, um, but this particular set of laws can be a little, um, it's harder for us to find a way in. Um, as I said to someone earlier, you know, when I turn to my book, Torah Queries, <laughs> you know that we're going to have to dig, right, for some explanations that move us and make sense to us. Fortunately, even with this, there, there are interpretations that are, that are very helpful and very useful. So, um, so let's begin. Let's just begin with the first. There are two related things, but I want to just start with the First two pieces, because I think that's where we're going to stay with these with these first circumstances of um, of being impure. So somebody start at twelve one. Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the Israelite people thus: When a woman at childbirth bears a male, she shall be impure seven days. She shall be impure as at the time of her condition of menstrual separation." On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall remain in a state of blood purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until her period of purification is completed. If she bears a female, she shall be impure two weeks as during her menstruation, and she shall remain in a state of blood purification for 66 days. Wait, she has a girl? Yeah. On the completion of her period of purification for either son or daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb in its first year for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a purgation offering. He shall offer it before Adonai and make expiation on her behalf. She shall then be pure from her flow of blood. Such are the rituals concerning her who bears a child, male or female. If, however, her means do not suffice for a sheep, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a purgation offering. The priest shall make expiation on her behalf, and she shall be peace. Okay. So we, we are dealing with, uh, we've come out of, at the end of the Parsha Shmini, we have had a discussion of um, all of the things that are impure, those things which we are to eat, to not eat, right? Things that render one uh, impure through eating. There, there's lots of different actions that can render one impure. The, the, the laws of purity predate Israelite culture. The laws of the 
excuse me, the laws of how things work in the ancient Near East are that there is a condition of ritual purity, which meant one could enter the temple, the sacred precinct, one could be involved with the sancta, and a condition that rendered one other. And in a state of other, one could not enter um, into relationship with the sancta or anything else that might spread that state of otherness. It was understood to be um, communicable. So a couple of things that I want to say, and and I know we know some of this, but I want to say it anyway, especially as relates to this Parsha, because it can seem um, a little (laughs) off-putting to those of us not familiar with the system. So the first thing that ritual um, impurity is not about... is ethics and morals. That is really important for us to understand. When we talk about people being impure, we tend to be somehow talking about ethics and morals. This is a state of ritual impurity. What's the, what is ritual impurity about? Well, it has, it has nothing to do with whether you're a good person or not. It's like you have to be in a particular state of, uh, I guess... Physical being. It's a condition. It's a condition. It's a condition. It's not a judgment. It is not a judgment. That is that is very helpful. It is not a judgment. It is a condition. And it is a condition that everyone is commanded to enter. That's how we know it can't be about ethics or morals. Because... No way would Torah command us, would the tradition command for us to become ritually impure. Hello, we're supposed to have children. We're supposed to have intercourse. We're supposed to have our menstrual cycle. We're supposed to bury the dead. All of those things bring one into a state of otherness, of ritual disqualification from dealing with the sancta. So the ancient Near East, this was, this was normal. This was, this was how they understood the world to be. They totally got this. Like in our day and age, we understand viruses and bacteria, though you cannot see them. If I cough into my hand, I'm not going to touch you because I understand that, that I can communicate that to you. They understood it just as clearly. right? So we tend to look at this and go, really? Like why? Why do we do that? Right? We we understand there are things we can't see. Now we know we can see them under a microscope, so that's our proof. So then we have to go here in the age of reason, right? Only through a certain kind of scientific um, set of criteria. But in the ancient world, they had their understandings of how the world worked, and this was part of it. So what what renders one ritually impure? The theory that I like the best is anything that brings one into contact with death. Why? First of all, death is the big scary thing. Right? It's anti-life. Think about how much right of this system was about life, affirming life, preserving life, how you live your life, right? <laughs> Down to the smallest detail, 
about life. The anti-life is death. It is also considered to be part of the cycle of things. We're supposed to bury the dead. We don't run from them, right? We don't go, ooh, death, and like run away. We're supposed to deal respectfully with the end of life. And the rabbi, the rabbis, in the ancient world, they recognize that that renders one awfully close to the most significant boundary that we have. And boundaries were very important. How did the world get created? Tell me about how the world got created. Something about it. God spoke. Separating. Separating. Without separating, you have utter chaos. That made them incredibly nervous in the ancient world. Separation and categorization and keeping within those lines, those boundaries, is what allowed the world to stand. Right? It's that fundamental. You start messing around with the boundary between life and death, you are talking about a state of liminality. You are now in the liminal place. And anyone who has ever lost somebody knows this to be absolutely 100% true. Anyone who's ever had a child through birth, and I'm not saying it can't happen other ways, but it's particularly through birth, understands exactly what this is. Um, Tzara'at, that we're going to get to in a minute, is, um, is an illness. Right? Anyone who has seriously dealt with illness knows that one is different when one has come into contact with the boundary between life and death. The more contact directly you have with that boundary, the higher the level of tum'ah, of ritual impurity that is communicated. What's the highest form of ritual impurity? What is the biggest one, the biggest shot of that you get? Contact with a corpse. Contact with a human corpse. Now, a lizard, a dead lizard, does not give you such a high level of ritual impurity. A human being, we would imagine, is way higher in Torah's estimation of value than a lizard. Yet, it communicates the highest form of tumah possible. That's how we know it is not a judgment. The more important the species, the more changed one is by having contact with it once it's dead. Does that make sense? A human death is more important. So it communicates a higher level of otherness. A dead lizard, okay, you feel bad, right? But not the same way you feel bad when you're burying a human body. And presumably you were part of a community, so this person was part of your community that you were burying, right? That's a very different level of tum'ah. So this is the way that the system makes sense to me. It's the way I totally get it. And there's things about it that we thousands of years later don't get. That's fine. Another way that it may also make sense to me, sort of a different line of thinking than the death connection, is um, I, I remember there, the, the, the idea of seeing a woman suddenly starting to change shape and then becoming large and pregnant. And, and um, there was, a, I believe, a concept that that women were magical and sort of like wizards. Not in this culture, but there are cultures where that was sort of, before it was understood how it happened, 
all of a sudden a woman just became like infused with this magical, powerful thing. So another way of maybe seeing that the birth part of it could be kind of exalting it to be so um, like uh, close to God in some ways or so close to beyond understanding that it was kind of seen as special, seen as needing to be set aside. The only, the only way I challenge that interpretation, not that it isn't relevant, I think it, of course, of course, bringing forth new, all that stuff about the ways women bleed for seven days and don't die. That's magic. That's why menstrual blood had such power in the ancient world. Who bleeds for seven days and doesn't die? Or isn't on the verge of death? And it happens every month with the cycle of the moon. I mean, so of course, all of that lends itself to the taboo state of women. I think that's true. What, what, what What doesn't make it feel as consistent in the Israelite system is that what does that have to do with a corpse? What does that have to do with... Oozing. What does that have to do with sexual intercourse? What does that have to do with the night dream where a man emits semen? I mean, it just... It, it, what is the thing that ties all of those... And menstruation, what, what ties them all together? And, and the only thing I've really seen that does it is that each one of them in its own way has a proximity to the ultimate magic, the ultimate crossover, the ultimate we have no idea, the ultimate oh my God which is death. Right. I mean, that, that's the only reason I, I buy this, is because all of them share that. It, do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I don't know that they all have to share something to make this portion kind of make sense. Like, okay, so if we, if we want to reconstruct sense. it, that's, that's totally great. And Berenblatt, um, Rabbi Berenblatt does that. Um, but if staying within the, the cultic Israelite system, just so we can even understand it on its own, Terms, and then we can. We're going to move, of course, as always, into what does this mean for us? <clears throat> She's impure for how many days with a boy? Thirty. Well, seven or thirty-three. So there's different levels of tumah. One is the same as if she had menstruated, because there's a lot of blood after birth. Seven days. So seven days. She's in the the more strident, right kind of. Um, or even more normative, you might say, uh, kind of impurity. And then how many for um, for the the rest? Thirty three. Is that was that like to clear it up? Like the seven she was impure, and then the blood purification is thirty. So thirty three more about birth doesn't say why. And of course, thirty three and seven is. Bert. <laughs> what is forty people? Years in the desert. <laughs> Days on Mount Sinai. <laughs> what is 40? There's almost two days. That's a magic number. Why is it a magic number? All the reasons everybody just said. <laughs> the years, the days. What were all those things? All those 40s? Completion. Were periods of transition. Journeys and And it takes 40 days. To complete a period of transition. If you're going to get to Torah, it's going to take 40 days to become a people who doesn't have a religious civilization to a people who does. If you're going to have a flood that's going to destroy the world, that, that's going to take 40 days and 40 nights. If you're going to wander in the desert and become not slaves, but a nation of free people living into a covenant with God, how long is that going to take? 40 years. 
So if you're going to move from a state of someone who didn't have this human being in them and now out of them to someone who now has this person outside of them, that's going to take 40 days unless unless it's a girl. In which case, it's doubled. So, if, go look at your text, Diana, open your book. Open your book. Go to chapter 12, verse whatever. And it says it right there. It gives you the numbers. For a boy, it's seven days plus 33 days for a total of 40. That's our normal course, as I've said, for a completion of a period of transition, an important transition. If she has a girl, how long is that transition going to take? 80. Forever. Can you tell I have a tween daughter? Oh, never was a truer thing said. Forever. Forever. So, why? Wait. And for 80 days, that, that, new, that mom can't even enter the sanctuary for 80 days. Correct. Why is birth okay, like I that? see this as uh, someone who is given birth. And I read this and I go, Huh. And it's like a pass. And for this woman who's just given birth, she doesn't have to do all this ritual stuff. She can just be with her newborn. And that's the way I see it. That's wonderful, but why is it different for boys and girls? Well, I would question. A girl's more special. When people are dealing with dead bodies, is there a way to become ritually pure? Yes, one waits and, and then a becomes. Long time? Is no. It, no, it's a shorter time. Mm-hmm. So I'm minutes. trying to understand the hierarchy. I'm trying to understand the hierarchy mm-hmm. of like, like the more days you get to be pure, is it closer to death or further away from Closer. Death? I think closer. So, and so what I've read suggests closer. So why? So why is it more for childbirth than a corpse? It makes so much sense once you get there. Well, because probably they have to deal with many bodies, I would imagine. Well, you what? Have, you, there's probably a lot of death that, in doesn't childbirth, have to do with too. The blood, it's so rich. So it's more life. life. You're, you're talking about two lives. You're talking about two lives. Right. Double the life. Both of which could easily yes. end with this. Yes, and they did so. They often did. 50% of children died before age five. So, so why? A corpse is dead. You had nothing to do with that. So does that, that's serious, and it communicates a seriously high level of tum'ah. Other than, what's the other big one, is when your own life is in danger. Through the very process. Your own life and the life that you're bringing forth is in danger. There was nothing certain about this. That's what we forget in the West. Not that we should, because let me tell you, there's many places in this world today, right, where women are dying still, and, and infants as well. It's ridiculous what we're allowing to have happen in this world. Don't get me started. So, so it was not a certain thing at all that one was going to come out of this alive, even after the birth. Infection, 
bleeding, all kinds of things happened in this period of time that could A, kill the mother, or B, kill the baby. So it takes some time for mom to, for it to be clear, mom's going to live, baby this is why, right, the baby's not doesn't have a soul, quote-unquote, until 30 days. It was a kindness. Because um, if you made it to 30 days, you were pretty sure the infant had a shot, right? Un- unless something else should happen. But it's not going to be the birth, you know, or something wrong with the baby. Um, so, so this makes complete sense. That it took this long for everybody to be able to take a breath and go... Okay, mom and baby can re-enter regular relationship with the world because it looks like everything, thank God, is going to be okay. We're going to talk in a minute about then an offering is brought. So that makes total sense. I want to stay in this for a minute. Why twice as long for a girl? Because she's going to be a mother one day. Exactly right. I think there's another reason, perhaps. That the that the average the average birth weight of a baby girl is even less than the average birth weight of a baby boy. So they're smaller, maybe frailer. But she is going to menstruate. She is going to give birth repeatedly. This baby's life is going to be in danger repeatedly, forever. In terms of as long as she's you know fertile, that is significant. You are bringing a life into the world that's going to risk its own life and is going to experience ritual impurity every 28 days itself. It is a much bigger deal about what that relationship to proximity to death is about. I There's a part of me, and I don't love this, but there is a part of me that has in the back of my mind infanticide around girls. And I, I wonder if some of it isn't that if a girl survives, it was a good thing, right? It's not, it's not taken for granted that girls are going to survive the process of birth and then nurturing. If you command that they have to be locked up together, mom and baby, for 80 days, how, it's less likely that something's going to happen to that baby girl. Yes? In a world where girls were extraordinarily vulnerable. You lock mom and baby together in a relationship for 80 days, and it's a little less likely that... Maybe. That, hmm? I mean, maybe, there, you know, the, if you get... A, was it alone alone, the two people, the mom and baby? Well, mom is excused. As we said, mom gets right. a pass. So mom is with baby. But, there's, but they're not separated from everyone they... Or was there? Were they? Well, there, there was. I mean, their help. There, I mean, there is that sense of mom and a baby alone. Maybe that's the you know. Depending on the you know postpartum depression can't be like a totally modern. But if we don't consider that normative, right? Where's help? I'm just asking. Yeah, red. There was people. <coughs> well, it, it was not until the 19th century that people knew that cleanliness was important with Lister, and it wasn't until the 20th century and C-sections 
that most babies in at least the industrialized world could, uh, you know, could live, and the mother would survive. So life and death at birth were right there together. They were right there, they were right there together. And I don't know the statistics on women who died in childbirth, but with no C-sections and nothing, no idea of infection or anything like that, it was, you know, we think of birth as, oh, this is when life starts. But I think up until 100 years ago, it was life and death right there. And probably for a woman who, I guess, did not fight in the wars, it probably was the closest she came to life and death on somewhat of a regular basis. What was the most likely cause of death? Yeah, Yeah, for women, for sure, it was childbirth, for 100%. I thought the book, The Red Tent, was an ideal situation for women having babies. There was such a feeling of companionship and help, both physically and emotionally. They really had permission to really enjoy that time. I was jealous. <laughs> right, because what happens for Western women when we think of this? What are we thinking of in terms of our Western mind? Isolation. Well, isolation. Isolation and work. And work. Why is it so much work, Blanche? It's a baby. It's an infant. What, what's, what's the work? <laughs> right? So a woman newly having birthed, and again, I'm not saying this does, some of this doesn't happen with adoption. I'm saying, but we're talking about a world in which the norm was she was physically compromised and still weak and still in danger. Um, and, and what in the West happens is they are isolated. And the woman who's just dealt with this, you know, exhaustive, messy process, painful process, is now not sleeping, right? Nursing every three to four hours. So she's not sleeping. She's not eating well. She's, I mean, and then she's changing diapers. And then she's washing the baby. And then she's trying to rock it to sleep. And then she's cooking dinner. And then she's cleaning up. It's ridiculous. Isn't there also a sense here that the, the child, in terms of growing up, there was a sense that boys were stronger than girls and that the boy could not be under the total care of the mother for a shorter period of time and that maybe the girl needed, I'm talking about a baby girl, needed more time of her mother to get the strength? I think it's less about strength than it is about a boy would have left the mother's circle sooner because he would have moved into the circles of the male. Okay. He would have left mom at weaning to become part of the male sphere. That's how I was that's thinking not, of that's it not is not the male. No, no, but, but, but if you're going to say he leaves sooner, I don't think it's about strength. I think it's about um, he, moved, he moved away from mother into the realm of father and brothers, whereas the girl would have stayed with mom past weaning. She would have stayed in the private world of the tent. She would have stayed in the private world of the hearth um, and the home, whereas the boy would have moved out into being taught how to throw things. Um, <laughs> at things. Girls are not allowed. I've spoken like a minute. What? Tell me. 
Well, it, after seven days, uh, which usually the circumcision yeah. on the eighth day. Yeah. And they were so concerned about death. Yeah. Why they would separate the baby from the mother? Who says they separated the baby from the mother? Well, that's what you say. They no, it's for, the, no, no, it's forty. Forty days. It's forty days, not seven. No, when the boy is weaned, when he doesn't need to nurse, he would have moved more into the realm of the father. He doesn't need to be close to mom. He's going to go learn how to hunt and how to throw things. And the weaning would be when exactly? Four, five, six. Okay. okay. <laughs> and at forty days, they send the baby to the father, and he goes and he, he goes on the hunt. He's hurting. <laughs> I have a great image of this little infant. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, Anything about these? Where, 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 where was I? Thank you, Laura Diamond. For, oh, I shouldn't say your last name. Um, for bringing us back. Okay, so the other thing that sometimes becomes a little bit off-putting about this section is, um, for some folks, is that it says that she, on the completion of her period of purification for either son or daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the meeting a lamb in its first year for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a chatat. What is a chatat offering? All right, so it's very... So I just heard those two things conflated. So I want to be... And I just learned this actually this year. um, So I want to share it. Purgation and sin offering. We tend to conflate them. And this article that I was reading particularly about um, Arshat Tazria, which, of course, I have made a copy of for you, um, says that we shouldn't, we shouldn't conflate the two. That I still don't know how to use a copy machine, so it is stapled at the bottom <laughs> left corner. Shut up. It's a new machine. <laughs> Chatat is Hebrew, so we're going to look a little bit at um, oh, the, ah, the stapling Hebrew. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. That's very generous. Oh, which thing that Laura said? Someone that did postpartum depression. Yeah. I will tell you there is no way that is true. There's a few more. No, of course not. So what was the deal back then? Does Torah teach us anything? No. Mental health or not being right? No. 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 It assumes a perfect world. No. It just doesn't discuss. It doesn't concern itself with postpartum depression. Torah has nothing to offer. What about not being right in general? Like, not necessarily having to do with birth, but people not being in their right mind. It's not an interest of Torah to tell us anything about it because there's no prescription. Torah has nothing to offer other than one should be living a life of righteousness and therefore one should be compassionate and empathetic. But, But Torah has nothing to bring to that discussion. It's not, it's not Torah's interest. I mean, so why is it not here? Well, it's never been there in terms of a law code. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, 
Why would it be here? Where would it be discussed under? Mental disabilities, emotional, that's all Western language for, now, did they have an awareness that sometimes women were in a really dark, awful place after birth? Heck yeah, I don't think that's at all not implied here. That There's lots of things that are scary and dangerous about birth. One of the changes that happens in the woman. So, But they wouldn't have identified it as a psychological or emotional issue. It might be demons. And the foreskin and the circumcision protected the boy against demons and probably the mom as well. And so he has a shorter time. Mom and daughter have to lay low longer. right? There's, there's danger still for mom and daughter is one theory. That the circumcision protects right, it, from that kind of stuff. But they would not have identified that as something that needed to be addressed in Torah law. We don't see any stories of women who go into that place after they birth children. All of their stories are about, in, in some way, what you said, the ideal, that having a child is ideal. Rachel dies in childbirth so that they're not, they're not shying away from the difficulties involved. But, but our obsession with the inner life and the emotional and psychological life is, is not present in the ancient Near East. Isn't it partly because there's ritual all day? There's not the time to be thinking about emotional life. Part of it is that the... I think they didn't understand it necessarily as being that important. I mean, they weren't so self-obsessed. That's Let's put I it that way. Day, they had rituals. They For, have to study. Not even they just ritual. They, they lived in extended family units. They had responsibilities. They had things they needed to do, and life was over by 45 Get over it. Get up and get to the field. The, the family has to eat. You know, we got, it's harvest. I don't care if you're depressed. It's harvest. Get up. Yeah. There, there's, there, there just wasn't this preoccupation, I don't think, with, with the inner life per se. It was how one contributed to the family, how one contributed, how one behaved. Of course, there were as many emotions then as there are now. Of course, life was as varied emotionally as it is now. It's just not Torah's interest to explore it. It's all My mom gave birth to 10 children. And the way she gave birth to 10 children, I look at me, of us with cool, but, it's, but we were working in the field, came down from the big hay and just gave birth. Yep. And she went it. back, go home, rest for a day or two, and then go back. That that's, was not my that's right. Also, these were not thirty. That's right. These were not thirty and forty-year-old women. Right. These were well, like these were like teenagers and early twenties. Well, and if they were in their thirties and forties, it, it was even more dangerous in some ways because they were on baby number ten or twelve. Um, all right. So let's let's go to the. So let's go there, shall we? Let's go to the chata, shall we? I was trying to find it when I got waylaid. Jacob Milgram. Show me where it says Jacob Milgram. Page four. Page four? Oh, here. So go to three, page three. 
The moment of childbirth, you see that paragraph? The moment of childbirth is thus highly paradoxical and not a little bit confusing. New life, but also a new threat to life. Maternal impurity, then, is a way of coping with and responding to the ways in which the boundaries of life and death have been crossed and to the great dangers that the crossing brings in its wake. We've discussed that. All right. Why, then, must the new mother bring a sin offering? The simple answer is that she does not. The prevalent rendering of chatat as sin offering is mistaken, says our scholar. Bible scholar Jacob Milgram has convincingly shown, for this author anyway, that a chatat is not a sin offering at all. The Hebrew verb in question is not chata, sinned, but chita, which carries no other meaning than, quote, to cleanse, expurgate, or decontaminate. A korban chatat, then, is an offering of purgation, or, as Everett Fox suggests, a decontamination offering. So why wouldn't it say instead? Because in, in biblical grammar, one has to... One has to determine what is the root of the chatat offering. And normally people say it's chet tet, chet tet aleph, chata, sin. But one could read it chita. There are no vowels in the Bible. So if one goes to chita, a different form of, the, of a similar from a simil- from the stem, but meaning something a little different, we can take one stem and have it mean very different things in English, right? So that same stem, it's not that it doesn't relate to sin, but it's not that someone sinned, so you bring the offering. Sometimes it's because you sinned that you have contamination, so you have to bring an offering. Sometimes it is, as Reuben said, a state. So one still needs the chita. The decontamination, but it's not because you did something wrong. It's, it makes me think of Fukushima and Chernobyl. The people who went in there, <laughs> the, the people who went in there out of the goodness of their hearts, either to get people out or to help whatever, and then they come out, and because they have been close to this nuclear whatever, they have to be decontaminated. And it's not whether, and in many cases, the people were very good because they were going to try and do something very good, either in the case of Chernobyl to save people, or Fukushima you know, to clean this up so other people would be safe, and then they come out and they themselves have got to be decontaminated for a period of time before they can enter other society. Yes. It's not exact, but it is somewhat similar. Okay, so what did that say now? So, um, I want to go back to... Um, To this idea of Tame and the experience um, that you brought up, Nicole, the words of Rachel Baramblatt, also known on the internet as the Velveteen Rabbi. <laughs> Do you know the book, The Velveteen Rabbit? When will I get to go and play with the real rabbits? So as a rabbinical student, she started a blog called the Velveteen Rabbi. When will I get to run and play with the real rabbis? 
um, and she became very famous. That blog became very, very famous, and so now, now she uses her real name. But she's also the Velveteen Rabbi. Check out her Passover Haggadah. It is stunning. Rachel Berenblatt, and it's available for free, her Haggadah, on the internet. You can print it out or just print, print sections of it to use. Yes, just just Google Velveteen Rabbi Haggadah. Yeah, unbelievable. And she updates it, so it, it's really beautiful, really beautiful. So she says, when I first... When I read the Torah verses about how a woman is tamed for 33 or for 66 days after birth, I think of spending my first two months of motherhood swimming against the current of postpartum depression. Where is that? It's on my page that I'm reading. A different kind of tum'ah, which nonetheless separated me from my community. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that that's what the Torah verses are about, per se. And I know that every woman's experience is different. But I suspect that many women experience the first one or two months of motherhood as a different time, an overwhelming time, a time which is set apart from ordinary life. Labor and birth were a one-time thing for me. But I am blessed now to be able to minister to people through the journey of sickness and death and burial. And I know that every time I touch death in these ways, I come away feeling changed. Changed? and charged, electrified almost, as though I had shed everything extraneous in myself and my life in order to go somewhere very deep. I think that deep place is the same place I touched when I closed my eyes and Drew was born. And I know that every time I go there, it takes a little while for the experience to wear off, as it were. When I emerge back into ordinary life, when the spiritual tingliness wears off, I'm often exhausted, but deeply grateful to have touched those depths. That's how I understand Tum'ah now. Tum'ah is the stuff of blood and birth and death and ineffability. Most of us don't live our lives in constant awareness of our blood and our mortality and our deep mystical connection with something beyond, capital B, something from which we emerge when we are born and to which we return when we die. But birth and death, blood and semen, and mysterious bodily separations are part of this human life. Leviticus offers us one very old framework for understanding these things and how they impact us. So while we would not recommend returning to a system of Tum'ah, I really do spend a lot of time, like she does, with people who are ill, with people who are dying, with people who are burying a loved one, with people who are giving birth, with people whose child has had a terminal diagnosis. And I think, where are the ways that we take the time to honor that confrontation with the ultimate? capital U, with, as she said, the beyond, capital B. Where, where do we allow for and honor the fact that that is completely life-altering in that moment? It doesn't mean we won't come back to regular life, but we will come back changed each time. With each birth, with each death, with each illness, we come back to life 
normal, regular, pure, in this system, life different. And I just don't think we do at all a decent job of acknowledging that. And we don't do a good job. Where's the chatat offering? Where is the ritual of blood? Right? You slice the neck of that animal. Where's the blood that affirms your experience of blood is closed for now? You are changed forever by it. And we are bringing you back into the fold, into regular life, into who you're going to be now that you've had that experience. Where where we have that? Often in our culture, mothers have a baby shower. Excuse me, when it's not needed. <laughs> if you ask me, right? Like it, it's before the baby's. All of the craziness happens once you're in those final stages. You're not sleeping at night. You're exhausted. You know, your body is like freaking out, and then you go through this hugely, unbelievably transformative thing of having a human being come into the world that like, what? Excuse me, me? We took that baby home in the car seat. I cried the whole way home from the hospital. I was like, I can't be out in the world where she could get killed. I can't do it. Take me back to the hospital. I can't do this. I cried the whole way home going, how am I supposed to function knowing she could die? And it's my job to keep her safe. I'm driving the car? Really? From now on that she's in? No. Take me back to the hospital. Take me back to the tent. Take me back to the red tent. I can't do this. It's too scary. Right? That, it's that transformative. And we just say, bye. Let's go over to the hospital. Bye. Like, good luck. <laughs> Enjoy each other. We'll see you at your first checkup. Like, you know, like, and you're just dropped into this incredible void of who, uh, 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 where are the grandmothers? Where are the aunts? Where are the cousins? Where's everybody who's supposed to tell you, oh, honey, let me take her. You look awful. Go back to bed. Do, I'll bring her when she's hungry. Like, go back to bed. No, no, but. Right, we this Western nuclear family model is a dismal failure. It is. Amen. They send you home the next day. Twenty-four hours later, it's your left. So what does reconstructionism say about I'm? I mean, I think we kind of know what we want for that that birth moment, but. With death, we have so much less comfort and experience with it. We know about Shiva, so maybe we'll do it for like a couple days. Right, we'll still go to work because oh, I've got a really important thing to do. But what what rituals can we find in reconstructionism for this? You know, the the parent whose child is dying, or for you know these really crucial times it, where ritual makes a difference. It is a very serious question, Laura, and I and I'm not going to suggest by my short answer that it, that it's not. My short answer is I don't know. So the like our our world doesn't have. Those rituals. We're, we're not yet ready to admit that, that Shiva has failed. We're not ready to admit that yet. Nobody in the Jewish world is ready to admit that Shiva's not working. Do you think it, you mean it failed because we don't know how to do it or we don't do it? Or that even when done, it fails? Because no, because we, we don't do it and we're not gonna. Well, we have we're not gonna go back to Shiva as the normative way of supporting families after a death because we live too far apart. My father died in Florida. 
I was going to sit shivel where? I emptied his apartment alone. Who was going to come sit with me? His buddies? Thank you. You know what? We'll have a drink and then you can leave because they're going to have 17. And they're going to like, you know, they're, you know, but, you know I, it's not going to help me. So like, do I come back home and have Shiva and then go back and empty the apartment? Like we, we don't live in a context where mom and dad die where we live necessarily. And even if they do, our friends live across the city. They're not going to come in for seven days. They're just, I just don't think that's, that's right. Given if they live, you know, east of the 405, they're not coming here seven times to sit with us. And certainly that means they're not cooking and they're not cleaning up, right? You know, you know, Mickey Bienenfeld has a sermon. Ask him. He has 45 minutes that he can give you at the drop of a hat on now it's a cocktail party now that you're you're the one who's throwing the shiva for everybody and you're the one cleaning up and you're the one ordering the food from the caterer and you're right so not only is it not helpful now you're putting on a party for you know 30 people and so people don't want to do it they're saying forget about it we'll do it one night because you because you're you have to it's you know you're supposed to whatever but it's it's not functioning as the way for people, I don't think, to, to experience the support that they need around those significant losses. I am not suggesting we don't need it. And I'm not suggesting it isn't still the best answer. I'm saying I just don't see us in America 2014 moving anywhere close to that being what's going to happen. So your question, which I take very seriously as a rabbi, because believe me, this is what keeps me up at night, is so, so what are we going to do? First of all, I think we have to admit Shiva's not working. And a lot of people in the Jewish world are not ready to go there. They want to blame Jews for not doing it. They well, blame Jews. Knowing what the fundamentals of it really are. Like, that's what I think. What could, it's not working because of traffic and other that. Well, okay, maybe that means you, in your own space, maybe that, you know, you figure out what the answer is. What is it that's fundamental about Shiva? Shiva is that you don't go out into your regular life for a while. You honor what you've gone through. Right. But, but whoever but, you know, lives close, maybe. But my point is, we're still at a place of wanting to say, if Jews would just get off their butts and do it, Shiva would work. Mm-hmm. And what I'm work. saying is, until we can honestly say, our life is such that, that is not going to be normative. And we can't blame the Jews for that. We live in a context where it is no longer, A, necessarily the best answer. Because, like I said, mom and dad die in Arizona. And we live in Duluth. So it, it isn't naturally the best answer. So we have to admit that. Then we have to say, are we committed to figuring out how to be there for each other in ways that are really meaningful and really important? I, of course, say, yes, we must. So I believe, and that's why I sit in this chair, and it's why I'm here, um, I believe communities of intention like this can figure it out. We can figure this out, and we can make this work if we understand each other for real, for real, for real as family, which we don't yet. We're close. We're getting there, but we still assume the family will do shiva. Do, do you know what I'm saying? We still, sit, we still ask, so are they doing shiva? Why, why, are we, why aren't we calling and saying, we're coming over? Like We're not there yet where our culture allows us to, quote, unquote, impose ourselves on the grieving family because we're not family. And so I think we have to reconstruct kinship 
We have to, you know, the anthropologist in me, you know, we, we have to totally reconstruct the boundaries around kinship and around what is considered overstepping and what is considered impolite and what is considered okay and what hopefully someday will be considered the expectation, which is that my community of Torah study are going to be at the doorstep the minute they get the news that something's going on. Okay, I see lots of hands. Um, not to defend Orthodox Judaism, there's a lot of problems, but I grew up in that community and I sat Shiva the way Orthodox Jews sit Shiva and it was, I don't want to say wonderful, it was very curative. And that's where community does come in because their synagogues are community and even if relatives aren't in town, the community takes over and the house was full of people all the time and they weren't my relatives, they were people I knew from my synagogue. So it really does work and we can probably adopt a lot of those as a synagogue, as our community. So it's reconstructing the idea, yeah. right? That who is family? My family is my community, my community and of intention. And that's mostly who came and visited our synagogue membership. Linda? Well, I, I was just going to actually say the same thing that you said, because community is important. And we, I think in this particular community, we know that. Or we're getting to the place where we know. And so... There's no reason why we can't, for better one or better words, study the issue and and figure out a way to make the community part of, of what goes on, of the Shiva part of what goes on in our community and, and participate. Excellent. Richard? Um, I wanted to go back to the place where you were talking about how you get, every time you have one of these death encounters, you get changed. And it seems to me that uh, every time... You know, on the one hand, obviously having a death encounter is a scary thing. But at the same time, it's one of the few times that you are given the opportunity to meditate on what's important and what isn't important. And uh, it's and then when you and then when you um, to the extent that if if it happens often enough, as you and it happens more and more often as you get older, obviously you have these encounters. Um, it makes you realize that the stuff that is not important is often the everyday stuff, which is kind of like a, it's almost like walking through air pollution. It's like this little contaminant that sticks to you as unimportant stuff that somehow you need a reminder that you need to be rid of. And the hita is, it's kind of like, it's not like... Uh, it's not like impure and pure. It's almost more like focused on the mundane and focused on what's important. That once you, once when you have been, when you have been ritually purified, hopefully you have been brought back into a state where you get to focus on what's important. Or when you've been ritually purified, you can go back to being focused on the stuff that's not important. But you know, like it. We can't live in that intense. I mean, I like that that you know that that, that time is a time. It's, it's a way of focusing on what's really important, and we can't stay like in that place. So you know, then we. I don't know about you, but like, there's t- there's times where I've left a nursing home or I've left something. And I'm like, and and I can't explain it. I have this absolute elated excitement that I get to choose what I'm having for dinner. Like I'm I'm excited, but oh my god, I get to go home and watch television. Like or I I can, I can have. I can, I can go have a hamburger. Like, and it's like the, this excitement about being back in touch with the minutia, the regularity of everyday life. It's so comforting after the intensity 
you know, of the hospital or the ICU or the whatever I've just been in, then it's like it's, it's a relief to be able to come out of that and focus back on the stuff that's like not so important. pleasures, and I think, Richard, you're talking about everyday, like, right. annoyances, like, that are things that are what not important to you. What restaurant should I go to for not, that hamper? Not joys. Right. Even that. Even that is a pleasure. Blanche? Well, I've been fortunate to have my family all live in this area. And I made a commitment that when a baby is born, I will stay with the mother and the baby for five to seven days, even though I have a serious job and I have a serious husband. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I made the arrangement that I do that. And I didn't realize that my kids were shivering. They didn't know how we'd all get along together. <laughs> so anyway, after a day, they would say to me, hey, this is working. You're okay. <laughs> and I was okay. Right. And so not only did I help my daughter, but I had a relationship with that baby. That continues till this day. And you had a new relationship with your daughter as parent to parent. Yes. So there was a, there was a formation period for your new relationship that we often don't have, right? That you really got to know your daughter as a mother and got to relate to her as a mother. Um, and to, like you said, to that baby as you were becoming a grandmother to this new one. You're a different grandmother to every grandchild you have. And so... You were becoming, you know, your relationship was in formation there, too, as a grandmother. That's beautiful that you had that, that you could do that together. And the wisdom that I have was appreciated. Mm-hmm. It, my guess is you all of a sudden instantly got really smarter. Right. <laughs> right? All of a sudden, you weren't so bad. You, you, were, you were pretty smart, right? Because on now all of that experience, she knew, right? She knew so much more about what that experience was Nicole? Um, I just wanted to go back to Shiva, that Shiva topic for a second. You know, I, I've watched people, well, we all, several of us in here, have watched people lose their child. And I see how, I saw how, like, it's such a tragic thing that, and everyone wants to help. And descending upon this family for seven nights or whatever it is. I mean, there were like hundreds of people there every night. And I came home each night and I said to myself, like, this is the worst tradition ever. Because if this were me, I would want to be under a blanket somewhere, very medicated, and not want anybody to do anywhere near my house. I want to be with the feeling that I have. And so, I mean, obviously that was a tragic circumstance. And if it's a parent dying of old age or whatever, you know, Shiva's wonderful. But it just, there's instances where you, you know, is there anything, any that, that... So here, here's the where thing. Where did this come from? Here's the thing. Question. Our tradition says, I don't care if you want to be in the bed medicated under the covers. Hundreds of people are going to be at your house because you belong to hundreds of people. And your pain belongs to hundreds of people. If you want to stay upstairs, that's fine. 
but we'll be preparing the food and we'll be taking care of your other kids and we'll be taking care of your cousins and we'll be taking care of the other kids who are in class with that kid and their parents. So you can stay under the covers. That's fine. Nobody demands that mom comes down. Nobody. But we're coming to your house. And so our, our tradition calls us into community at the very times we most want to say, get out, stay away, because it's so easy to go into isolation and depression um, as a result of loss and grief. We're uncomfortable. We're embarrassed. We're vulnerable. And our tradition says, you don't get to pick. We're coming over. And we're going to be here. You have to come to shul for the next year. You have to come to shul to say Kaddish. I don't care if you want to stay home. You, every single day in the Orthodox world, in the conservative world, every single day, you have to find 10 other Jews before work and say Kaddish or on your way home from work. Right? So I'm not saying it's easy, but it is certainly our, this is our cultural understanding of what we do for each other, whether we like it or not. Rabbi, I was going to say that you, uh, in the Orthodox tradition, you're not even supposed to engage the person grieving unless they initiate. Correct. Did you hear what Ruben just said? Sorry. In traditional Shiva minions, when you come in the door, you sit down and you shut up. You don't say anything. You don't engage the person unless they choose to. So you sit down and you shut up and you are present. And if, they, if the mourner speaks, you respond. But you do not speak to the mourner. In fact, very often the, the, uh, the visitors don't even have to speak. Just their presence is important. That's right. That's exactly right. Kind of circling back where this began when Laura asked about rituals and what our rituals are. I think on a broader sense, part of our problem today is that ritual has become a dirty word. That when we say ritual, a lot of, I'm talking about progressive Jews, you say ritual and they immediately think empty, no meaning, going through the motions, ridiculous, just what my parents wanted. And so beyond the question of what we do, I think is a question that progressive Jews face, and that is, what do we do about the whole concept of ritual? Do we accept the fact that there are rituals, and that rituals can have meaning? Or do we just say, if it's ritual by definition, then it's just rote? Spoken like the chair of the Religious Practices <laughs> Committee of a synagogue, of a very large synagogue. Yes. Margo? I want to say that you know, we have these meetings where I think they're still having them, to get to know each other better and to know the love. Well, the intention was to get to know the rabbi. These salons that we're doing? Yeah. Oh, salons, right. Yeah. Okay, but but the one I went to, there was um, one person who spoke to this very situation and compared it to a shiva that she remembered when she, and sort of like what um, you were saying, how how it felt to her, and that she really missed that in our community. When her husband died, right? When her husband died. 
Right. She come, She had a, an experience on the East Coast with a very traditional community and then was devastated when she lost her husband here and and nobody showed up, right? right. This is exactly the crisis sign. we're in. That was a sign to us at that time, and I think this really proves that maybe there is something like here that we yep. need to work on. Yep. I agree with everything everyone's saying. You, you said something, though, about not just the person who lost, um, the, like the husband or child, but there's the other person that's there accompanying. I've very often been that person who, a friend of mine is losing a husband or a child, and I'm sitting there with them, and I'm not part of the Shiva, per se, or whatever it is, but there, it does feel like there's a ritual missing for me. And I've been that person. My mom was that person that always ran when the third cousin died and went, and I was there with her. And so maybe that's continued in my life, but I don't have a ritual. It's just something I do because I, I do it. Right. But it would be nice. It would be a nice thing to add that. Because I think a lot of people here don't have family, so the other don't have biological families. So by that same token, there are more people like that 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 are companioned that are, through this right. by by other com- communal presences, right? But right. friends, you know, or whatever. And then w- the impact on that, what we call secondary trauma, right? So there's the primary person, right. the primary loss. What we talk about a lot in my business is secondary trauma, which is you right. who are supporting that person. Right? right, the whoever is you know supporting that person. How do we deal with secondary trauma? Just uh, I, I think about I've been thinking about this quite a bit with my parents getting older, and that I would really like to have my community to just you know sit shiva with me. And I thought um, you know it would be so easy to just everybody out fifty two weeks. Someone agrees, ten of us this week. Uh, you know, we're on and we're willing to go to any member's house for a week and sit chill with them, you know, or however they want to set it, set it up. You know, one, one person this day, ten people on a particular day, but it's, I think it's really doable. I hear a, a huge yeah. kin caring committee forming right now. I think you should be chair. <laughs> so, um, so, we, so we definitely should be looking at this as a community, yeah. 100%. And... And we have some work to do on on um, people understanding a. I think the need for it. B. Being open to people they quote don't know coming over. This is a very interesting time we're living in. People are like, you know what? I don't want someone I don't know. I just got told this on the phone the other night. I don't want somebody leading Shiva. I don't know. So. Um, it's a very interesting time. So I think it's two-pronged, you know, or maybe even more. But we certainly need to put some energy and time into thinking about how to have what to offer, which we can certainly do through um, Kim Caring and any of us who are interested. Um, and some real need to figure out how to reach out and start changing some of the norms around who comes into my home when I am vulnerable and I am grieving and I am certainly not wanting to deal with quote-unquote stranger you know like we, we just have culturally we have work to do uh, my hope my biggest concern is do we have the energy for it in terms of where everybody's time and attention is like Bert said people tend to kind of go okay whatever like you know you know what I mean they, they poo-poo it and so 
my concern is how do we rally energy and focus and support and awareness, you know, for families around around this issue. And I'm, I'm not I'm not sure how to do that. Other than to offer. Um, one thing I just learned about Shiva, when you get up from sitting Shiva, the first thing you're supposed to do is go visit someone else who is mourning. So it sort of brings you out of yourself, and that's sort of a very beautiful tradition, which doesn't seem that difficult to initiate here. We have a lot of members, they go through a death, let them move to somebody else when their period of mourning is over. It's for opportunity. That's actually beautiful. Linda? Um, I would say that some of us, but not very many in our congregation, are involved with uh, Kavarot. And I, I think of the community in my Kavarot, um, I think we're all there to support each other, and that's very comfortable as well. Yep. Any kind of a situation, happy, sad, or getting together for dinner. I mean, yep. you know, and, and maybe somehow we can this is the ongoing conversation ongoing conversation about how to get that going because again what is the what is the main thing we hear people don't want to commit to hosting in their homes and they don't want to commit we're talking about Chavara you know developing the Chavara system Um, they don't want to commit to going somewhere else either once a month I mean and so it's a very interesting time we're living in we're living in a time of great challenge I really believe that we're doing a fairly good job here at KI anyway of bringing people to the building for lots of different things that I'm hoping then spills back out right into people's lives. So we're going to be even more intentional about how can we have it spill over into into life outside of here. But this this group is a chavara in in many ways to me. Um, so what what time are we at? Okay. <laughs> he gets here every week. <laughs> he does. But when I see people coming in for spiritual teaching, I realize it's probably time to end um, this part. Um, Rabbi, can the serious uh, husband say one word? <laughs> can the serious husband say one word, Bivakasha? Uh, if we just find new words to replace some of these words. We'd have a lot easier time um, reconciling with this troubling uh, chapter here. Yes. Impurity suggests uncleanliness. It's, it, it, it's, it's, we're dealing with words here. Really, what we're talking about is separation. And if we could find something that's not quite so charged a word, which I don't know what it would be, but I think it would make it a lot easier to accept what we're... Well, and, and there's a reason we've moved past this system. So I think what a lot of us are suggesting is there's a way to reconstruct some of the core ideas about, you know, about otherness and separation. You know, you're right, without using the language of a system that to us is arcane uh, now. Um, so I'm going to read to you uh, the poem, We Mothers, to close... Nellie Sachs, based on Leviticus chapter 12. We mothers, we gather seeds of desire from oceanic night. We are gatherers of scattered goods. We mothers, pacing dreamily with the constellations, the floods of past and future, leave us alone with our birth like an island. 
we mothers who say to death, blossom in our blood. We who impel sand to love and bring a mirroring world to the stars. We mothers who rock in the cradles the shadowy memories of creation's day. The to and fro of each breath is the melody of our love song. We mothers rock into the heart of the world the melody of peace. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.